You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Evan Roberts Podcast. Pretty soon, uh, we will morph a Met-centric podcast into its own feed. And it'll happen on a more consistent basis. Over the years, I've done some random instant reactions, some random Met-centric podcasts. But starting real soon, it'll happen on a more consistent basis. For example, at the end of each series, kind of like today, and then once in a while, some instant reactions mixed in. So take a look for that. It should be starting in the next couple of weeks. But the Mets went two out of three against the Philadelphia Phillies. And let's be honest, after game one of this series, after the Mets blew a 4-0 lead in the eighth inning in which they lost a game that felt eerily familiar to the last couple of years, there is not a one of us that thought the Mets would respond by winning the next two games and winning this series. Because you go back to game one of this series, and you could simplify it and say, look, you have a four-run lead in the eighth inning, and you blow the game, period, stop. That's why you lost. And certainly, that's the main reason why they lost. Trevor May coming out for a second inning, having to leave with an injury. Jolie Rodriguez sucks, especially when JT Real Muto hits a ball that still hasn't landed. And one thing we know about him is he can get lefties out, he can get righties out. Well, in a world in which there's a three-batter minimum, and in a world in which lineups are not lefty, 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 it's usually lefty, righty, righty, lefty. You're going to be in trouble. And obviously, Seth Lugo was as bad as it gets. But the other reason why the Mets lost this opener was that after they were gifted three runs early in this game, and after Alec Baum tried to hand them more runs with his terrible defense, the Mets couldn't take advantage of it. You're facing Ranger Suarez, who did not have his best stuff, You've gotten to the Philly bullpen and Nick Nelson in the third inning. You have a 3-0 lead. You've got guys on base, most innings, not all innings. And other than when Lindor had that clutch, and I give him credit, clutch RBI single in the seventh inning, the Met offense did nothing. And that's not to say they lost because of their offense. Look, they lost because they blew a big lead in the eighth inning, obviously. But they had a chance to tack on. Instead of this being a four-run game in the eighth, it could have been a seven-run game in the eighth inning, especially when every time you topped the ball to third base, Alec Baum was having an adventure with it. So those are the two reasons they lost this game. And it was a devastating loss. And those two things I just laid out, the lack of a big hit, which they struggled with all day. They ended up three for 12 with runners in scoring position. Combined with the bullpen meltdown, that is something we are all very, very familiar with. Obviously, the injuries played a big part in this game. Taiwan Walker out of the gate looks electric. Six up, six down, four strikeouts, including Nick Castellanos and Bryce Harper and Kyle Schwarber. 
And to see him come out of the game in the third inning is not only <clears throat> disappointing in terms of this individual game, but obviously Taiwan Walker is a big part of this rotation. And a guy in which, boy, if he could be half as good as what he was in the first half last year, and that's as your fourth or fifth starter. Mm. So obviously the news on him is not into the world stuff, but he's not going to be in the rotation for a few weeks with bursitis. The Trevor May stuff, which is also really important because they need his arm out of this bullpen, also doesn't seem major. He didn't even go on the IL. But what this game kind of forced the Mets to do was to throw David Peterson into the fire. And I think David Peterson was going to pitch in this game anyway because I doubt Taiwan Walker was going to be allowed to pitch very deep. But David Peterson was outstanding. And even though Buck Showalter doesn't want to commit to it, David Peterson's in the rotation. And David Peterson has been given a reprieve. And look, if he pitches well and McGill pitches well, what do you do when everyone's healthy? Well, first of all, is everyone ever going to be healthy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about it. Is that day ever really going to come? Or right as when Jake gets healthy, someone else gets hurt. Or right as Taiwan Walker gets healthy, someone else gets hurt. It's a cliche, but sometimes cliches need to be said because they're so, so, so true. You never, ever, ever have enough starting pitching. So one thing I'll do when we recap these games is give you a worst screwed moment of the game. Kind of that moment where I was sitting there with my scorebook in hand and knew, holy crap, we're screwed. To me, in this game, in this eighth inning meltdown, it was actually not when Real Muto hit the home run. Because that home run at that moment cuts it to a one-run game. You still have a lead. You're still four outs away from winning. Now, I know you don't have Edwin Diaz. He was not available for this game. But I wasn't fully convinced this was going to end in a meltdown. I'll tell you when it happened. Seth Lugo comes into the game. He's kind of your last line of defense because Seth Lugo is probably being asked to get the final four outs of this game. Again, no Edwin Diaz. I guess Adam Adovino's an option for the ninth inning, but to me, it's Seth Lugo we trust. And when Seth Lugo walks Nicholas Castellanos with two outs and nobody on, that's when the sinking feeling came in. (laughs) And you saw what happened. Reese Hoskins is RBI double. Didi Gregorius is behind in the count. He rips an RBI double, and the Phillies take the lead. And yeah, there was no shot the Mets were coming back, even against the immortal Brad Hand, as they lose a brutal opener to the series. And e- even though the cliche is momentum is the next day's starting pitcher, and that actually turned out to be the case because Tyler McGill took the baseball game two of the series and threw a shutout into the sixth inning. There are losses and there are wins over the course of a baseball season that you feel can kind of snowball into something bigger, into a losing streak, into a winning streak. And after starting this season 3-0 and giving away the finale against the Washington Nationals because of the defense, it wasn't Trevor Williams, it was Pete Alonso. Pete Alonso had a shaky game defensively. Luckily for Pete, he's bounced back defensively. And I'm not giving up on him as a defensive first baseman, even though there's going to be plenty of games, as we've seen recently, where he is going to DH, whether he likes it or not. To lose that way against Washington and to back it up with an even worse loss the following day, there was a feeling in my stomach of, wow, they're going to take this 3-0 and start and flush it. Not that. You know, you, if you have a three and four road trip to start the year, does that is that the end of the world? No one's saying it is. 
It's 162 games. I, I've been around long enough to see the Mets get off to really good starts and then suck and really bad starts and then succeed. So I'm not telling you it's an indicator of the season, but as a diehard baseball fan, you don't want to have a losing streak. <laughs> it's as simple as that. You don't want to walk in an opening day at City Field under 500. And it sort of felt that way. Am I crazy? It sort of felt that way, especially when you're staring Tyler McGill versus Zach Wheeler. Zach has dominated the Mets since he's gone to Philadelphia. Who knows what you're getting from McGill after the opening day start. This is a Philly lineup that's due to explode. And it did not in game two of this series. This was just another incredible effort by Tyler McGill from top to bottom. And the question I have, and this is for Buck Showalter to answer as time goes on, is at what point, and, and let me make this clear, this is not a rip of Buck. This is not, a, this is you know me screaming and yelling. I'm asking a question. And it's, I think it's a question we should all ask. At what point with Tyler McGill do you give him more rope in a game in which he's pitching well? So take a look at game two of this series. Tyler McGill, I mean, he's not dominating. There were guys on base. But for the most part, he's pitching just a hell of a game. He's not walking anybody. He had given up three hits. His pitch count is still rather reasonable. It's the sixth inning. Okay? Sixth inning, one nothing Mets. McGill's pitch count is low. Gives up a leadoff hit to Johan Camargo. Camargo, And then there was a sack bunt. Okay? Sack bunt. So they've given you an out. Runner on second, one out, top of the order, third time around coming up. Now, I completely get that Jason Shreve is one of your lefties. And Jason Shreve has been a really good Met. Remember two years ago in 2020, he was one of the more constants in 2020. I totally get that you like that lane, as Aaron Boone would say. You like that matchup. But my question is, when you have really good pitchers, and I'm not saying Tyler McGill is there yet. I'm questioning when are you going to give him that shot. You allow them to face an order third time around. You allow that guy to throw 95, 100 pitches. That's not for everybody. In fact, the vast majority of starting pitchers are held to that strict standard of, We don't want you facing a lineup third time around. And I get that. As much as we complain about it, as much as I'm old school, I also believe in following the numbers and following the trends. It's not being completely into analytics, but also not being stupid. You know, you got to be open-minded. But when you have a young guy in Tyler McGill, who we still have no idea what he is, we really don't. Could Tyler McGill turn out to be a star in this league? Why not? It was Jacob DeGrom highly touted when he came up. Remember, the Mets preferred Rafael Montero over him. So I'm not saying Buck was wrong for pulling him at all. I'm merely asking, hey, at what point? Maybe it's May. Maybe it's July. I hope it's not never, though. At what point do you say, you know what? This kid's good. I'm going to let him face Kyle Schwarber for a third time. I'm going to let him face JT Realmuto for a third time. Two starts in, Tyler McGill looks awesome. And I think we are getting closer to that day. And and maybe second start of the year is not the moment. You're still stretching guys out. You're still finding out about guys in your bullpen. But we are approaching that day where you've got to give Tyler McGill a shot. You got to say, you know what, kid? Go face Kyle Schwarber with a runner on second and one out. And by the way, this move worked great. Chase and Shreve got Schwarber out. He got Real Muto out. 
And then Buck perfectly allows him to start the seventh inning. He gets Bryce Harper out. He did great. Did a fantastic job. It's just more of a question long-term about McGill. Because sometimes guys come up and they're not prospects and they turn out to be really, really, really good. And vice versa, obviously. (laughs) Guys come up as big prospects and they suck. But Tyler McGill's going to be in this rotation as long as he's healthy for a while now because Jake's not coming back tomorrow, that's for sure. And I think we need to learn more about him. So maybe it's his next start, uh, which I guess would be this weekend against the Diamondbacks. Maybe it's a month from now, but I hope it's soon because I want to see what this kid can do. But great effort by Drew Smith, who's clearly showing he needs to be a guy who's used in high-leverage spots after he gives up that double to Castellanos, gets the back-to-back strikeouts. I was skeptical about letting him come back for that eighth inning, but Buck trusted him against the bottom of the order, pitched a 1-2-3 inning. Edwin Diaz made a sweat in the ninth inning, even though his slider was electric. But how many times have we seen Edwin Diaz look electric, look unhittable, and then make that one bad pitch? So as I sat through that ninth inning, and again, great job by Lindor, did it again. Clutch RBI single in the eighth inning, the insurance run. Watching that ninth inning, though, was very, very, very stressful. Now, for me, I was watching the ninth inning about three hours after it happened because this game occurred the night of the Brooklyn Nets playing game, and I I was able to succeed in not having any idea of the results as I got home, which is the greatest feeling in the world. To be at another sporting event, enjoy that sporting event, drive home, 11 o'clock at night, sit down, open up the scorebook, and have no idea what's about to happen. It's a great feeling. And I've expressed this before that when I do that, and it happens once in a while, and hopefully it's going to happen a lot more and the Nets have an extended playoff run, I have gut feelings. I have like a strong premonition on how the team's going to do. And I would say I'm like 75% accurate for whatever reason. I had a really strong feeling we were going to lose this game. And maybe it's because of the night before, the two nights before really, the back-to-back losses. But I just had this loss feeling and I was wrong so the I know we're going to win this game moment of the game that occurred when Reese Hoskins struck out to end it (laughs) there was no moment before that it was literally when the game ended but a huge bounce back they did a great job against Zach Wheeler especially early they made him throw so many pitches early that even though Wheeler got into a groove you knew they're getting to the bullpen by the fifth inning because we knew going in Wheeler was really only going to be allowed to throw about 60 pitches. So, good first inning. A few more Mets get hit. More on that a little bit later on. They get to the bullpen, even though the Philly bullpen actually pitched a hell of a game. Nimmo hits a home run. Lindor gets the big hit. The pitching is outstanding. And the Mets win game two of this series. And then you get to the finale. Oh, yes. The finale. Max Scherzer on the mound. Now, selfishly, these games, these afternoon games during the week are very, very difficult because I do a radio show, as you may know, between 2 and 6.30. And it is very difficult to do a radio show while simultaneously keeping your eye on a Mets game. Am I watching it as closely as I do every other game when I've got my pen in hand and scoring it? No, it'd be impossible, but I'm still watching it. Now, the first two innings I'm able to watch with ultra focus because we're not on the air till two. And Max Scherzer in that first inning showed you who he is. 
I feel like that's happened versus us before, where Max Scherzer's a little bit off with his command. He issues three walks in the first inning. You've got the bases loaded and one out. And as a fan of the opponent of Max Scherzer, my thought would be, we better effing hit him. We better score runs. Because if we don't, he's going to settle down. He is going to give the team we're facing five or six really good innings. Yes, you work this pitch count up. Yes, it's early in the season. So, you know, okay, kind of like what I said with Wheeler, best case scenario, or I should say worst case scenario is at least I'm getting this some bitch out of the game by the fifth or sixth inning. But when he struck out Gene Segura and he got Didi to tap out, there was that feeling of they're not getting to him. Now, maybe they'll scratch out a run or two, but they're not going to get to him. And they didn't. Max gets through the second. Max gets through the third gets into major trouble in the fourth inning. And again, same thing. Gives up a run, but for the most part, gets out of it. Gets through the fifth, and that was it. A a solid five out of Max. Obviously, you want more than five innings, but when you're throwing, what was it, 96 pitches? Obviously, that's all you're going to get. The Met offense hits a little bit eventually. Nimmo hits another home run. They score runs in the fourth when Jeff McNeil gets hit by a pitch. More on that later, because the Mets keep getting hit by pitches. Pete Alonzo comes through with a couple of RBI doubles, and then he gets the three-run bomb in the sixth inning to go up 8-1. to And as I'm on the radio, my partner, who's 75% just busting my balls, says, okay, that's a wrap, Mets win. It is a weekday afternoon game in Philadelphia against a division rival, and you're up 8-1. to Does anybody really think the game is over-over? Look, are the odds high the Mets are going to win? Yes. But we have seen this song before. So even at 8-1, to one, you're very, very nervous. And when Sean Reed Foley comes in and hits a batter and walks a batter and gives up a hit, and they got lucky on that hit to Camargo because remember, he actually ripped a double that was going to score two runs. They called it back because it was foul. He ends up with a single but not as damaging as the two-run double. Come on, we're all nervous as hell. And then in the seventh, they bring the tying run to the plate. From 8-1 to one to 8-5, to five, here's Bryson Stott as the tying run. <laughs> we saw Sean Reed Foley stink. We saw Jolie Rodriguez. I, I guess, look, here's the problem with Jolie Rodriguez, and I think we saw it. He comes in to face Kyle Schwarber, and he strikes him out. That's his job. That's what he does. But then when he has to come out and face JT Realmuto, you know what's going to happen. There were very few guys affected more than the three batter minimum than Jolie Rodriguez. Because if you could hide him, if you could just use him in that proper spot, he's effective. Now, look, did Buck have the option after he struck out Schwarber to simply take him out of the game? He did. But I think he also saw Bryce Harper two batters later and said, ah. Let me, uh, let me steal an at-bat versus Jolie at, uh, against Real Muto, and then I get the matchup I want. Obviously, it didn't work because he gave up a hit to Real Muto and didn't get Bryce Harper out. Adamadovino comes in, gives up a double, and then eventually gets the huge out against Bryson Stott. And Seth Lugo. See, this was, I think, one of the most important things of this win 
was that Seth Lugo in a three-run game comes in after lighting the world on fire two innings earlier, or two games earlier, lighting the Mets on fire, I should say, and pitches a really strong one, two, three inning. Strikes out Schwarber, strikes out Rio Buto. I think that was really, really encouraging for Lugo to bounce back because he is, besides Diaz, who's the closer, I'd argue Seth Lugo's the most important arm out of this bullpen. They need Seth Lugo to be the guy he was in 2019. They need that guy. And if he's going to be the inconsistent guy from last year or the guy we saw in game one of this series, my bullpen's in major trouble. So I thought Lugo pitching a really strong 1-2-3 inning against 9-1-2 of the order was monstrous. Then Diaz gets the last three outs, and the New York Mets win this series. When did I know the Mets were going to win? <laughs> I could easily say when Pete Alonzo hit the three-run home run. By the way, my allergies are kicking my ass in case you're saying you sound like crap. I know, I know. I don't have COVID. I've got allergies. I've got pollen dominating me right now. I think, believe it or not, it was when they got Stott out in the seventh inning. Because here you have the tying run at the plate. Even if Stott doesn't hit a home run, he rips one up the alley. This is a one-run game. And he, he gave it a ride. He got it right in front of the warning track. I think when Ottavino got Stott out, that was the moment I relaxed a little bit and said, okay, I'm confident they're going to win this game. And they do. And they win this series against the Philadelphia Phillies. And now with an off day, they come home and take on the Arizona Diamondbacks off a 5-2 and two start. All right, let's address all the Mets that have been hit. In the series against Washington, I wanted retaliation. And I think what's happening right now, I find it sort of fascinating, is that there is a love affair with Buck. And I love Buck too, by the way. This is not a rip of Buck show, Alter, but I try to be honest and fair and say, would I be saying this if someone else was the manager? What would we be saying if this wasn't Buck? And, and honestly, I think a lot of Met fans would have been pissed that there was no retaliation if anyone else was the manager. But because we do like Buck, and because he gives a death stare when a guy is hit, and because, look, Buck knows what he's doing. I think one of the perks of Buck Showalter, and I give Sal Licata a lot of credit. We talked about this even before they hired him. We did a, a podcast, and Buck's, or I should say Sal's major point on hiring Buck or a veteran manager was, Evan, I'm sick and tired of watching games worried that my manager has no idea what they're doing because they're learning on the job. And it was a great point. It was a very simple point to say, go get me a guy who's done it before. He's right. Obviously, Buck Showalter's done it before. He is, and this is what I really appreciate about him more than anything, his attention to detail. It still bothers me that Art Howe had no idea Dontrell Willis was a lefty. That kind of stuff can't happen. So I, I love that Buck Showalter is the manager of this team. It was the perfect hire. But if the Mets had been drilled a million times by this young national team with any other manager, despite stares, despite coming out of the dugout and there being a a bench-clearing incident, if there was no retaliation, people would be pissed. Am I wrong here? So look, I think at some point there'll be retaliation. I would have liked the retaliation over the weekend. I didn't think there needed to be any retaliation against the Phillies because the Philly hit batsmen, for the most part, kind of helped the Mets. I mean, first of all, when Jeff McNeil is hit with the bases loaded, it gives you a run. Like, sign me up for that. And remember, right before that, Canna was hit, which loaded the bases. I, I Look, I know nobody was doing it on purpose. It felt like with the Nationals, it was reckless, and there was more risk for injury. 
So I didn't walk away from the hit batsmen from Philadelphia feeling the same way I felt with Washington. With that said, look, if the Mets continue to get drilled, you're going to have to start hitting people. I know that sounds immature. It sounds stupid, but that's baseball. I do think eventually there will be some retaliation against the Nationals. Uh, You have a long, long memory in baseball. I think the key right now is no one gets hurt. It was scary in the Washington series. You had guys getting hit near the head. Lindor, Alonzo. They're very fortunate right now. No one has gotten hurt. In fact, I don't want to jinx it. Seven games into the season, position player-wise, they are healthy. They're taking a hit with the pitching, obviously. But position player-wise, they're healthy. All right, a couple of things about the lineup. I know Dom Smith has not looked great offensively. He did have that sack fly in the ninth inning, but for the most part, has not looked good. I am still preferring more Dom than Robinson Cano. The one perk to playing Cano is to just see what he is. It's like an evaluation. What is Robinson Cano? Is he a guy you're going to bury on the bench? Is he a guy that you're just going to cut and write him a check and say, go away? I'm not at that point yet with Robbie, but I am at the point of, I need to see more from Dom because here's what Dom does. As much as Pete Alonso may not like it. Dom is a better defensive first baseman than Pete. And I like Pete. And I think Pete has clearly gotten better. And I thought Pete had a really good defensive series against the Phillies after the disaster on Sunday. But I don't think this is arguable. Dom's better defensively. So if you're getting Dom's bat in the lineup over Robbie, and and I do think it's as simple as that because Canna should play every day. Nimmo should play every day. Marte should play every day. Escobar should play every day. Lindor, McNeil, a lot. Those should be the everyday players. Obviously, there's going to be off days. I get it. You know, there will be days where JD gets in the lineup against the tough lefty. I totally get that. But on a day in and day out basis, you are basically deciding between Robinson Cano and Dominic Smith. That's what you're looking at. JD Davis occasionally against tough lefties. Guillaume, Jankowski, Nitto, clear backups. Both Dom and Cano have not been hitting, okay? Both of them. Dom has the bigger upside, and Dom makes you better defensively. That's the positive you get. So, look, I think over the next few weeks, their playing time should be 60-40 Dom. See, I'm not completely burying Robbie. I'm just saying I prefer to see more of Dom. And then as time goes by, we'll have a sample size, and the better player will play. It's similar to the discussions we've had about the Yankees. Eventually, it's going to become clear who should play and who shouldn't play. You know, right now, what are you basing it on? It's not really fair to base it on seven games because to Robbie Cano, if he goes four for four tomorrow, all of a sudden he's hitting over 300. But I think right now, besides the days where, you know, you're stealing an off day for Escobar, you're stealing an off day for Marte, days like that, I think it should be split about 60-40 Dom Cano. That's in this moment. That can change. Look, Robbie Cano starts hitting. My view on it will change. Same with Dom Smith. And there's nothing wrong with that. You play who who plays better. Not that complicated. I think where Buck has to use his Buck personality skills is with Alonzo. Because I I, I love Pete Alonzo. I think he's a great dude. He's a tremendous player. Uh, Pete Alonso is so important in this lineup. He's the one guy in this lineup that I think opponents look at. And, and if you want to say fear is too strong of a word, he's the one guy that makes you nervous. 
You know, you want to tell me Starling Marte, Francisco Lindor, sure. Pete Alonso is a slugger. Pete Alonso is that guy who at any moment can hit the ball 450 feet. And the Mets don't have a lot of guys like that. They don't really have true sluggers in this lineup outside of Pete Alonso. And I love that Pete wants to play first base. He should. And I will defend Pete Alonso to anybody that he has gotten better defensively. And he works his ass off. This is something that started before he made his major league debut to now. I interviewed him before he made his major league debut, spring training 2019. And here's this kid saying to me, I want to be a gold glove defensive first baseman. Same thing he's saying now. He said, I want to be Paul Goldschmidt. That was the guy he wanted to be. And three years later, he has gotten better. Not saying he's gold glover, not saying he's Goldschmidt, but he has gotten better. And so I'm not telling you he should never play first base. But when Dom plays and Alonzo plays and Dom's not playing the outfield, how do you DH Dom Smith? You don't. Now, it's early in the season. So if you want to say, man, it's early in the season. I want to keep running Pete out there. Maybe it's a confidence thing. Maybe it's a, I know he prefers it thing. And then, yes, as the season goes on, if Dom has earned that everyday starting role, at least in the lineup, and the defensive difference between Dom and Pete remains, well, then I'm going to put my best team on the field. And Dom's going to play first base every single day. So I get it if once in a while you want to do it. But right now, and I say this as someone that defends Pete Alonso's defense, Dom's better. I'm sure you give Pete Alonso truth serum, he'll admit the same thing. So a big part of managing is not necessarily when do you take this pitcher out? Why did you make this move? Even though we spend a lot of time talking about that, a big part of managing is managing. Managing personalities, managing egos. And I think this is going to be a little bit of a challenge. Look, to Pete's credit, he DHs the final game of this series against the Phillies, two doubles and a home run. So, <laughs> obviously, he can produce as a DH. But I have no problem with him, you know, being open and honest about, hey, I want to play first base. I prefer that. And at the end of the day, it's not going to change who's in the lineup or not. Like, if Dom Smith proves to be a guy who's got to be in the order every single day, you can make it work and say, Dom's in the lineup. It's just a matter of who plays first base and who DHs. But I always feel this takes care of itself. I love Brandon Nimmo. When Brandon Nimmo plays baseball, he is really good. He's a spark plug at the top of the order. He's got pop. He draws walks. We all love his hustle. The problem with Brandon Nimmo is he's inevitably going to get hurt. That's what the track record says. And if that happens, all of a sudden, Dom Smith's playing a lot of left field. May not be ideal to have him in left field, but he's playing a lot of left field. He just is. Because now all of a sudden you're looking at outfield of Dom, Canna, and Marte. I'm not hoping for this, but I'm preparing for this. Because that's what usually happens. With that said, great start to this season on this road trip against division rivals. You don't want to get too nuts over seven games, good or bad. None of us can forget the start that they had to the Mickey Calloway era. What were they, 11-1 that year? God. That was sick. And I think their winning stopped when they pulled Jacob DeGrom too early out of a game and the bullpen imploded against the Nationals. So you don't want to get too high. You don't want to get too low. But it is a very, very good feeling as a Met fan walking into the home opener against the Arizona Diamondbacks 
with that kind of record, with that kind of confidence, with that kind of swagger. I think it's great that Chris Bassett is going to get the baseball on the home opener. I think Chris Bassett's already made a lot of fans, not just for his dominating performance in his first start against the Nationals, but for that personality, for that, I don't care who you are. I don't give a damn how good you are. I'm going to try to get you out. His comments about the grinding, he's already warmed himself up to Met fans. Now, he's got to continue to pitch well, because you could say whatever you want. If you got a five and a half ERA, Met fans aren't going to love you. But it will be, I think, awesome on Friday. I heard Boomer Siason say something, and I completely agree with him. Sometimes I, it goes the other way. <laughs> but Boomer said, this is as highly anticipated an opening day in a long time, and I could not agree with him more. As somebody that's been to every Mets home opener in the last 25 years with the exception of one, the one home opener I missed was last year. And I said to myself after missing it last year, I can't do this again. You know, hopefully this radio station respects me enough where I can tell them I'm taking off. I'm not missing another home opener. And they were very nice about it. They said, you're right. Go leave your job for a day and go to opening day, you child. They didn't really respond that way, but it was too difficult. I'm a diehard sports fan. I I figured that like 95% of other sports talk show hosts, your fandom would start to wane as you do this for a living. That has not happened with me. It may be my greatest flaw, but my greatest attribute. I'm not sure. So I'll be in the building And I've been in the building for many, 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 many Met Home Openers. And Boomer is spot on. The anticipation for a few reasons. The new ownership, the offseason that they had, the manager, the good start, the expectations. I think when you put all that together, that adds to it. The other thing is we haven't had a true home opener since 2019. Last year was weird. And I'm not saying that because I wasn't there. I'm saying it because only 8,000 people were there. I remember talking to my dad who went to the game. And he said it didn't feel like opening day. It felt weird. He said it sort of felt like a a Wednesday night in April. You know, after opening day when the crowds are small and it's cold outside and no one's there. That's what it was like. And it's nobody's fault, obviously. COVID restrictions were in full force at that moment. So I think to have a packed crowd, to have the raised expectations... I know it's been a few years with Steve Cohen, but I think it's still sinking in. The Tom Seaver stuff, the Jackie Robinson stuff. Uh, I think opening day, Friday afternoon at Citi Field is going to be as hyped as it's ever been. And I'm very, very excited. So eventually, we will do a Mets-specific podcast just like I did today. It'll have a name. It'll have its own feed. uh, And I'll keep you posted as that happens. But for now, you can find it under the Evan Roberts Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And let's go Mets.